my father, who is a huge inspiration to me, you know, lives by more testing and less debating. Just give it a go. You know, what have you got to lose? Welcome to the Lush Life Podcast. I'm your drinking companion, Susan Schwartz, and I bring you the how-to guide for living life one cocktail at a time. Thanks to my mother's love of martinis, the first words I spoke were shaken, not stirred, and I've been obsessed by cocktails ever since. Together, we'll learn from bartenders, brand ambassadors, distillers, and others why certain drinks are popular in certain cultures, how to make the perfect old-fashioned, when to shake and when to stir, and so much more. Hear that sound? It's time to cozy up to the bar and let the fun begin. Who applies to Harvard when they know they have no chance of getting in? Today's guest, that's who. And of course, Tom Two Castings, founder of the non-alcoholic spirit Brago, wowed them in every way and succeeded in winning a place to one of the most exclusive programs in the world. It's not a surprise. Tom has succeeded in almost everything. From winning the design prize at school, to cooking for shakes, to writing books on vodka jelly. Now that his sights are set on conquering the drinks world, watch out. He's here today to tell us how he got his drive. So I was uh, very lucky to grow up in the Cotswolds. So grew up in a teeny little town just outside Sarancester, amongst the rolling hills. So very sort of idyllic English countryside. And did you go to school there? And all, like, were you a tiny school? That kind of thing. Yeah. Well, it was. Um, I wasn't that small school. I went to a very Victorian prep school, which uh, has since closed down a long time ago. Oh, boys. Uh, there were a few girls, but um, the headmaster did used to say, for girl, read boy. So you were just che- treated as children. Everybody I don't even was know. the same. <laughs> I'm not even sure what that means. Well, it was like, you know, he, he wasn't, almost wasn't prepared to admit that there were girls. It was just like, you're all children and just get on with it. I don't really care. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's so good. sexual equality in some ways or complete and utter pickheadedness. I, I never was quite <laughs> sure which. And then did you think about the drinks business when you were young or is this something new? No, I mean, I think I've always been a dreamer and I was an entrepreneur at prep school, which I actually got into quite a bit of trouble for. Um, We weren't actually allowed to have money. Um, It was a wonderful uh, idea, a great bit of marketing. It was uh, Lloyd's Bank and I remember it now. We had checkbooks, age sort of eight, nine, ten. You had your own checkbook. And you could write checks on things, and it got you to understand money. And, and the, the headmaster who kept the ledger would keep it. And we always said there was VAT, which stood for Volvo Added Tax, because you always drove a Volvo. And I'm sure he charged for our banking as well. Um, but I created uh, a few things which I sold. I, I've been a marketing man a lot, so I used my elder brother to push the product. So I created balsa wood airplanes, and I gave one to my brother. So as an older boy, he drove the interest and excitement. And then I made them myself. And uh, my You literally mom... bought balsa? And well, how did you make these? It, it, was, it was a fantastic business model that I actually got my mother to buy the balsa, thinking that I was keen on the, on the aeroplanes. My brother did the marketing and I sort of sold them for 100% profit. Um, and some of them flew and some of them crashed. But um, yeah, it's just sort of made myself. 
um, and then you know started a trend for some of these collectible cards that come with chewing gum and uh, just happened to be the only person who had any of these which I've got to our next door neighbour owned a garage and had access to cash and carry and you know I went along there one day with him and I saw these and went oh these are great and managed to buy a whole box of them and then was the only supplier so what was the theme I think they were Halloweeny those ones um because we have those in base, you know, my brother must have a 10,000 baseball cards. Yeah, totally. And these were really weird. I, I only saw them once and that was it. And they were gone. They're sort of cartoony, Halloween-y coloured ones. And then I sort of did a trade in classic fountain pens and repairing them. Well, so, you convinced people to buy these things. Yeah, I sort of did. And, you know, you, you, it was about sort of, for early days, you know, creating a market and, you know, building a craze and... Preferably being the only supplier. So um, You must have been the richest boy in I, prep school. I sort of did really well. I went home with a lot more money than I went with. And uh, that was sort of what got me into trouble um, when it was found out. And uh, I had to give it all back. So oh, you know, no. one or two orders went back. But I was still very, very what happy. What were they upset about? Um, well, we weren't allowed money. So I, I was, there was also creating a black market in actual cash rather than checkbooks. Because obviously you can't oh, put I this see. through the books. So... Um, so I learned from a young age that you have to be above board in some things. <laughs> I love that. And so after school, I guess you went to university. What were you? What did you study? Yeah. So well, I think my my food journey started before university. So uh, I was really loved doing design at school, and you know won the design prize and really inspired me. At one point, I was going to go and um, going to go to furniture design college. Um, but then I visited my brother at university in Exeter for two weeks and uh, at one point I hadn't seen him for five days and I was like I'm going here or nowhere it's fantastic and it's the best decision of my life all my best friends from Exeter had an amazing time it was really fun Um, and I went well I miss making things and I love making things so I went off um, did a cookery course and went and started working as a chef and so paid my way through a year off in between um, school and university and also through school and beyond uh, working as a chef uh, mainly in, the, in France in south of Paris in Fontainebleau uh, where I worked in the Salt of Chateau and uh, sort of you know, progressed through the ranks <laughs> to sort of running some of the kitchens there um, but then cooking all around the world and I think that was when I really sort of ignited I'd always loved cooking and you know cut my nearly cut my finger off when I was about six making a tomato salad one Christmas morning thinking for some strange reason that's what my mother would really want for breakfast but I've always loved food and been surrounded by it but I think when I gained the skills and the ability to actually do things with food um, that really ignited that passion in me. So for you design just to go back a little design and making something was that automatically going to be food or was it going to be art or did you think yeah, about think anything else? One of the things I adore about food is you have this great opportunity to be creative and to make something. Um, but in such a social way, you can make something you can really share with your friends. Um, you know, It's not like I'm knocking out dodgy uh, oils that I inflict on people and make them hang on their walls. It's a moment. <laughs> it's something to be enjoyed. And then it's gone. And then you can make something again. So you don't have uh, a lot of clutter of you know what might be mediocre as you get going um, it's always there and it's always consumed and I think pretty much everything I've ever done has had a very strong red thread of creativity in it I I adore making things bringing things to life creating moments and that's been reflected in lots of different ways through my career now you said when you were six you were making 
tomato salad. Yes. Was this a love from the beginning, the food? Yeah, or do you just I mean, think my, that, that one Christmas you decided to make a tomato salad and cut off your finger? I'd, I'd, I'd always enjoyed food and I'd always enjoyed being around it and probably eating too much of it. And my mother's you know, a very good cook and so I'd always watched her and it was interesting and you know I've always been manually dexterous so I've generally been able to learn things by viewing them and if I watch something once or twice I can pretty much often work out how to do it and, and keep doing it so you know things like chopping and, and dicing and creating things that that I found you know very interesting from a, a very young age mm. and so you know I've, I've always been interested and passionate about it uh, especially if it involves cake. <laughs> That's baking, that's a different thing. Yeah, although to be honest, I, I love making cakes. Right. And I made some ridiculously over-the-top ones, but I, I'm not a, a baker. I think the, the I'm more of an art, so I like the art of cooking. I find the science of baking a bit boring and that you have to do exactly yeah. what you do. Otherwise, it just doesn't it work. Doesn't and I, I like sort of throwing things around and experimenting. So I, when I make crazy cakes, I do the, the boring base and then I use that as building blocks so you know I could almost be buying in the building blocks yeah. but it's it's about the look and whether I've done I did one for my dad which was a mirror ball that was set in the ceiling and it comes down rotating with edible mirrors on it and fireworks coming off it um, I built a sort of eight foot Christmas tree for my sister's wedding and you know pyramids of ones all sorts of fun things but the actual cake bit I find a bit more boring, um, mm. but I love the creativity and I love the, the making something a bit different and well, new. Well, after working around the world for your year out, wasn't it hard to come back to Exeter? Um, in some ways, yes, and in other ways, not at all. I, I think I was incredibly fortunate that I'm a great believer everybody has a moment in their life when life is good and they feel comfortable and they feel confident and that's when you make your friends for life. And at Exeter, there were just such an awesome group of people who are really nice people who are still friends and godparents today. And I just had so much fun. It was just wonderful. And we did a bit of work. Um, and that has an incredibly high academic uh, reputation. And uh, I don't think I really added to that, but I certainly benefited from that. <laughs> and what did you study there? I, I studied archaeology. or um, oh. uh, Yeah, so it was... Um, it was fun. It's about stories, uh, which I enjoy greatly, um, and it's helped me dig the garden, <laughs> things like that. But I don't think, you know, the, the career as archaeologist, um, whilst Indiana Jones is a very attractive role model, the, the reality is it's pretty hard graft for a, a very underpaid job um, to, to find out about the past. But I still am fascinated by it, but I just didn't see a sort of a, a lifelong career in it. So you have this honours degree in archaeology. Where do you go from there? Well, yes, and, and it was an honours degree, which I got by doing Spanish as well, which I, uh, I very nearly flunked, unfortunately. But I, I managed to scrape through. And uh, I think in America, when you say you've got honours, it actually means you're top, top of the class, where, um, whereas I sort of uh, scraped through on that. And I, I had, uh, had that sort of moment of, right, well, what to do? And you, you have the round interviews. You've been to university. You've got a degree. Do you want to be a banker? Not really. Do you want to be an accountant? Not my thing. You know, a lawyer? No. What are you going to do? And I come from quite an entrepreneurial family, so I've always grown up in an environment where there's a huge belief that you can and that you can do things. And my father, who is a huge inspiration to me, you know, lives by more testing and less debating. Just give it a go. You know, what have you got to lose? So 
I actually went straight out of university and set up a company um, based around food. And the idea, which was, and this is back in 99, so it's a while ago, was to build it as a portfolio career. So rather than relying on just one stream of income, to have various things which would complement each other and, and work together. So I was cooking, which was a good way to actually get real hard cash in through the door. Um, and especially when I went out to France and you're working, you know, 100 hour weeks, really, really pushing it, you know, and you don't have any time to spend it and you live on site. So, you know, you can, you can earn some money there. I loved the, the writing. And that was great fun. And of course, when you've been working for a sultan and you're writing books, you can then charge your private clients more money. So again, the, the whole portfolio thing was starting to work, that it was bouncing off each other. And I started up a dot com. Um, Unfortunately, it was right as the dot-com bubble exploded. So uh, I was just in time to get no investment and no money from it. But I had a site called cookingbynumbers.com. You put in the food you had, and it told you what to cook and how to cook it. And then it took you through the skills. And it, it was an idea before its time. Hardly anybody had a laptop. And there were certainly no computers and kitchens and no apps. And uh, I, I often sort of wonder if I'd actually brought it out at the dawn of the app revolution, mm-hmm. whether I could have uh, had a second bite. Uh, but I was busy then, so I moved on. Um, well, you said that you were writing books. Yeah, you, so... So I assume these were cooking books. Yeah, co- well, my, my first cookery book was Puddings in a Panic, um, which came out, uh, gosh, that must have been very early 2000. Um, back when I had lots of hair and uh, there's a very embarrassing photo on the back where you know it's a podcast so they can't see your hair my hair's fabulous I I have long thick golden blonde hair still (laughs) Um, but yes it was a um, it was a great opportunity Um, it was my first cookery book and I actually got paid to do it which was a bit of a surprise back then Um, unfortunately the the publishers sold their publishing house and the people who bought it weren't really interested in cookery books, but you know, we we sold some copies and uh, it was a big tick in the box. Um, so puddings in a panic. Yeah, is that you just have five minutes? The the people are coming in two minutes. You haven't made your pudding, so, so what can you make? You turn to you, Tom. Exactly. What is Tom so, telling you know, me to there, make? There was like you know, 50, 50, uh, a big selection of fifteen minute ones, and then there are a few more. Uh, slightly more complicated ones. And then there were ones with just lots of chocolate in, because I love chocolate. Um, but, you know, the, the, the sort of core part of the book was built around, you need a pudding, you need something delicious, and you need it now. And I think my favourite one of that has to be the passion fruit souffle. And people quite often say that souffles are really difficult. I know, but, I was going to say, in a panic, you're going to make a souffle? Uh, yeah, I never panic. But, you know, it's, uh, the souffle is it's wonderful, because everyone thinks it's the most impressive thing on earth. But it's actually very, very simple. And you just, you know, whisk up some eggs and some sugar and some other bits and bobs. And passion fruit is the most wonderful, intense, delicious flavour. And I, I adore it. it. The smell from it, the taste from it. And you can have it done in no time. You, know, you, start, you have to even turn the oven on the beginning so it's hot because you're going to have it ready so soon. And the problem with the souffle is that it does deflate. Um, so you just need a nice thick ramekin. And you need to go from the oven to the plate and you have to eat it there and then. It just doesn't hang around and that's that's where people get worried about souffles is they do collapse. But you know, it's that's half the fun of it. It's it's for now it's that moment and it's gotta be bang on. Maybe after this I'll make you make me a pudding <laughs> instead of that, instead of Prago. But let's continue. Um, so you had one book deal, fantastic. Um, so you were doing well. Why change? Yeah. Well it, it was doing all right and um, so I, I did a a second book after that, which was The Art of the Vodka Jelly, 
Um, it took about a year or two to write, mainly because the testing phase was extended by popular demand. So um, the vodka jelly came second. It yeah, so that, that was that so it was, was a drinks book came second, not another cooking really. Well, it's a sort of it's a sort of a junction between it, and I think the difference of what I tried to do. A lot of vodka jellies at the time were really quite unpleasant. It was how can you get vodka to just about set so you can shovel it down your mouth and what I tried to do was actually go well that's one way of doing it but I love the idea of jelly it's this wonderful wobbly thing it can be translucent it can be see-through it can capture a bubble it can hold something in the middle of it you can take the flavors and create lots of different textures and I think the secret of all of mine is they weren't actually that strong now to me when you say vodka jelly that is jello shot that you have in college to get drunk is there a tradition of vodka jellies here in the UK I, that I, I just don't know about? I don't think it's as strong as the, the American tradition, but mm-hmm. it's, it was very much around as well. Um, again, it was, and there were, there were troubles, you know, back in the early noughties where people were, you know, people, I think someone even died from eating a whole tray of them and because the, the gelatine dissolves, the alcohol hits the stomach incredibly quickly, which is very bad for you. Um, the ones I made were actually more like the strength of beer. And uh, you know, if you if you ever tried down a, to chug down a pint of jelly, it's not easy. So you know, it was never at a dangerous level of alcohol there, and it's also totally psychosomatic. I, I remember once I made a load, and I actually completely forgot to put the vodka in, and and everybody was still happily partying away, <laughs> thinking they were getting plastered when there wasn't actually any alcohol involved. Oh my god, that's hysterical. And uh, so yeah, the idea was to create beautiful artworks that you could eat. And mm. I loved the ones. I mean, one of my favourite ones was uh, with ginger beer. So it's a Moscow Mule one. So ginger beer and lime. And the jelly captures the bubbles. And as it comes out of the fridge and warms up slightly, uh, the gas gets bigger. So the bubbles increase in size. And you get a wonderful waft of the ginger coming off. And it's translucent. You can uplight them. And uh, I loved building big pyramids out of shot glasses with the jellies and people to have them as part of a, as a party. And I think it sort of comes down to a love of entertaining as well. It creates a focal centrepiece. And I did it for a few friends' weddings as, as a present. And you can do things like a, a delicious elderflower one. So using an elderflower fizz um, with a raspberry in it, because the elderflower and the raspberry work very nicely. And just a little sprinkle of fresh elderflowers over the top. And you create something that's sophisticated, that's beautiful, that looks totally in place in any wedding. But it's sort of a bit of a kickstart to the after party as well. Uh, you know, you, you seem to be having such a career already, <laughs> you know, and being so sex- successful. Well, why, would you, why would you diverge from that? Doing a lot of things, but, you know, the, the money's not necessarily flowing in from all these things, but it's a lot of fun. And I had what I call a fantastic lifestyle career. I was having a great time. I was in my 20s. I was single most of the time, bombing around, working abroad, and enjoying life. And... I thought, well, you know, maybe I should apply for a job. And uh, I actually applied for the position of head of food at Pret-a-Manger when I was about 24, 25. I didn't really realise it was a board-level position. I, I wasn't really savvy enough to understand this. I went for it anyway. And I got down to the last few and they said, you yeah, know, we love you, Tom, but you, you just don't have enough experience as a senior corporate executive. And I was going, well, I'm 24, sort of, what do you right. expect? <laughs> um, so I decided, well, maybe I should go out and get some. And so I, uh, I went into marketing. Um, I still you know, lo- and always have loved the food and the cooking and the writing. And so I actually wrote another 
Uh, my next cookery book I, I wrote whilst I was um, working in a full-time marketing job, and it was The Cool Camping Cookbook, um, and it, which is still in print, actually been reprinted recently. And I actually wrote that um, <laughs> totally the wrong time of year. I wrote it from <laughs> September to April, uh, so it was ready for the summer. And so I spent every weekend going out into the rain in a particularly rainy country we live in, getting soaked, cooking. And it was proper camping. And, you know, I, I think I really embraced and loved the, the whole feel of it. And the idea was food that you can take with you outside. So, you know, a lot of it resonates with sort of the beautiful barbecue summer we're having this year, but also the, the warm and the stodgy and thinking of clever ways that you can have um, much more delicious things rather than just having to have, you know, boil in the bag or something. Because boil in the bag is sous vide nowadays. So, uh, yes. so you know, <laughs> Very it, it should be fantastic. <laughs> exactly. So you were doing that on the weekends, but you were working in marketing. What kind yeah. of marketing were you so doing? So that was um, mainly direct marketing and early CRM. So looking uh-huh. into uh, running competitions for big brands like O2 and Sky and looking at how they interacted with their online audiences at a time when people are just really buying into email and seeing how they could connect with people through that. Uh, and also more traditional stuff from, you know, flyers and posters. And uh, very lucky, actually, I got to do quite a lot of work um, on the uh, 2004 Rugby World Cup in Australia. Um, I did all the hard work and the bosses got to go out for the matches, which was slightly disappointing. Um, but we did a lot around that, which is great fun. Um, was your eye always on the goal of working back in food and using all of this you know, business knowledge to get I, what you wanted? I, I'd love to think that I was that focused, but no. Um, <laughs> I, I had a feeling you were going to say I, that. I think I tend to sort of not, not wander around, but look for creative avenues and opportunities. I've I've always had... As something on the side, you know, at some type of company, whether it be you know, writing the cookie books or starting up a shirt company or various other things. And for me, that's a very important creative valve. So it might not even be for money. It might just be because I like doing that type of thing. And you know, I, I did some uh, TV presenting uh, around sort of food and luxury. And I didn't mean because I really enjoyed it. And I did a wonderful program on white truffles and Albert, which was amazing. It's a long weekend in Tuscany, just as the sun's sort of ticking off the end of the summer, zooming around in an open-top Italian sports car, drinking fine wines, eating amazing foods, really immersing yourself in it. And I spent every penny I was paid for that on truffles. Um, but That's what, what a weekend, and yeah. you actually get a video of it to take home. So, you know, not necessarily commercial, but great fun. And I think enjoying what I do is quite important to me and so you know I worked incredibly hard in the marketing but it wasn't really where I wanted to be um, and the opportunities to grow weren't necessarily what I wanted and so I moved from there into a um, interiors accessories company making luxury interiors accessories in the Cotswolds to help out on their sales marketing and sort of help them with their turnaround journey to really improve the company and help drive it forward um, so I went there for a few years, and that was very successful. Um, really lovely people who work there. I'm, I'm very proud of my time there. They're still, they're still doing well. They're still growing, and you know the the nice people who were there when I left, as far as I know, are still still working there. So, um, so that was a great time, and again, quite a shift to a different market, and 
I really enjoyed that market because there was a large amount of creativity. So I actually did some product design. So going back Great, to what I was yeah. doing at school and thinking of doing as a career, I actually got to do some more product design, um, which is something I've always enjoyed greatly. And you know, even now with the drinks company, I'm having a lot of fun making the, the little toys that go with it from you know, bottle openers and boxes and things like that. Um, so I do love a bit of product design. So I had a great time there. When did you decide it was time to go out on your own? Well, after that, I, I sort of had a little look around and I, I did some sales and marketing with some guys uh, in the food space. So food, sales, marketing all together, that felt right. Um, they were looking at doing a management buyout of one of the clients, didn't really work out. And they went off to set up a, a food brand and I, I moved in a different direction. Um, fortunately, that's not sort of innocent or something. Oh, yeah. huge, you know, but they actually, Barney and the guys are doing incredibly well. They've got a really cool product called Fuel 10K and they're doing really well. But that was a bit after we, we parted ways. So I, I wasn't wasn't invited into that one, but they're, they're doing awesomely well, which is brilliant news. No Breaking Bad moment. No, no, no not, not having a Breaking Bad moment <laughs> on that. Um, and I was, you know, in my early 30s, uh, my father had been finished off, uh, he'd sold his company and done another project, wasn't quite sure what to do. And we'd always wanted to work together and I've always been very close to him, but I never wanted to be daddy's little boy who's just there because of who you are. And we had a chat about it and we're thinking, well, I'm in my 30s now, I've proved myself in business a bit. And he was interested. So we set up a company called All About the Idea and we started doing creative marketing together. And so we worked for big brands like Coke, Diageo, drinks companies there yeah. and you know Nokia and IHG and uh, more recently people like Lidl and so we had a lot of fun doing uh, big experimental stuff um, you know big events crazy ideas stunts and that sort of stuff and I love that because that was um, all about creativity and you know, the company was called all about the idea and sort of did what it said on, on the tin really and what we wanted to do was to bring that creativity to people who sometimes didn't have it in-house. And a book came out of that, right? It, it did indeed. So I wrote a, another book, this time a sort of, sort of business book, I suppose you'd call it, um, called It's All About the Idea. And that, uh, you know, good bit of marketing. Um, and, and that was very much about distilling the question that we got pretty much every time we pitched or talked to people, which was, how do you come up with all this stuff? And whilst there's a certain amount of it is who you are, there are also a lot of ways that you can pull the best out of your teams and, and come up with ideas for yourself. Kind of a recipe for being creative, kind right? Of, kind of yeah. a recipe for being creative. So again, a different kind of cookbook, but a cookbook. Indeed. And, yeah. and actually, there, there's a bit in there, um, which is uh, marketing for accountants. So it's a recipe for accountants. So I... I'm sure there's some very creative accountants out there and there's probably even more creative accountants in prison. But, you know, not necessarily the right industry to get creative <laughs> If they're on. caught. If they're caught. Well, yeah, if they're caught. If they're right. really good. Then they're, they're not that... Then they probably work for the government. Right. But no, um, we, we came up with this idea that you could actually break it down into the different elements and how they all work together. So again, creating a real recipe, but something that can be understood by people who mm -hmm. aren't naturally creative or, or don't necessarily see that as part of their day-to-day -day role. So you got it now, I think... Time to tell me about Barago. Yeah, so, and then after 10 years of working together, um, we had a very amicable um, break. It's time to move up. And I think it was all sort of fueled. I, I was very lucky that I, um, I got a scholarship to go to Harvard Business School um, 
to do their advanced management program. And I got through that through the worshipful company of marketeurs. And they're a London city livery. And the city livery is all about charitable giving, supporting. And I'm a, a member of the marketeurs, which is the marketing industry city livery. And uh, they had this great opportunity. And it was endowed by uh, Professor Martin Davies, um, who went himself and had a very successful career on the back of it. And I applied for it and uh, you know, went through. I, the first round, I sort of realised I didn't tick any of the boxes that you needed to go. So you needed to have had 20 years of senior management experience. Well, I'm you know, still late 30s here, so that's not quite true. You needed to work for a company that was turning over at least half a billion. And uh, oh we certainly weren't doing that. And uh, you know, various other criteria, which are basically aimed at the large big companies, 50 plus year old executives who are doing really well. And it's the course is designed to turn them into global leaders. I went back with, a, well, I'm an entrepreneur and, you know, you need a bit of a mix. And my application, we had to do a one page application to, to get it. Um, to get through the first round before the interviews. And I made this very large pop-up book, and each page popped up and explained why it was important to me, the story behind myself, what I've done, why this is the right moment. You know, life is a mountain, education takes you to the top, and things that twirled, and the time is right now, and and all this sort of stuff. And um, on the back of that, I managed to squeeze myself through to the interviews. Um, went through the interviews a very nice lady came over from uh, Boston or Cambridge actually which is next door to it but yeah, from America and uh, you know she was interviewed with quite a square, scary panel of another four or five of the senior marketers and these are all people who've built and run their own companies and they're all senior businessmen and women and it's, it's quite a high female proportion so there's quite a lot of women there and got through got down to the last stage and I got the call and the call was, sorry, Tom, you haven't got it. I was like, oh, well, and, you know, this is where, you know, being English kicks in and you're being polite. Well, yeah, good luck to whoever got it. And, you know, I wish them all the best and, you know, grating half an inch off your teeth, but you know, uh-huh. being polite. And he goes, but we had a bit of a chat and some of the people were so impressed. We've basically had a bit of a whip round and there's a special one-off scholarship to celebrate our 40th years and you're going. So two of us went. They managed to find two places. And so I scraped through by my very fingernails um, and got to go to Harvard. And, and how was it with the other people? Well, I, I think that was quite difficult for some of the other people and there were some people who were very disappointed not to get it. Um, but, you know, it's like all these things. It's no, no, I meant how with the other people when you went to Harvard. Oh, that was amazing. It was great. Um, it was a wonderful place and mm-hmm. I had the most awesome time. I think the people are really what makes it and actually my... My co-founder is uh, one of my classmates, uh, Jocelyn, who, who was the, uh, the, the ex-president of TomTom. So, you know, they're, they're of a ridiculously prestigious nature. They're all very senior people. That Everybody there is amazing. But what surprised me most is they're all really nice. You know, there's a class of 187, 188 people, so it's a big class. A big. And I was sort of expecting there to be a lot of quite aggressively money, drive, bang, 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 it's all about me type people. And whilst you are in a very big room full of alpha males and females, you know, actually everybody's really nice. And I think there was a certain feeling that you've made it here, therefore you're one of the gang, and it's great. So mm-hmm. we're all the same and we're all together and everyone wanted to really help 
And we don't have to talk about how great we are because we already know oh, that we're exactly. great. Oh, exactly, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that's enough about me. What do you think about me? Right. Um, but, you know, it's, and I think there was a real feeling of that. It's like, well, you made it here, so you must, you must have impressed someone somewhere. Um, so we don't worry about that. And I think people also embrace the diversity. There's a hugely diverse audience there with people from all around the world um, people who did all sorts of things. Um, and there was a very, very small group of entrepreneurs, a very small group of people who had gone out and, and done things on their mm-hmm. own. And uh, I think people looked at us as sort of these sort of strange creatures who did weird things when a lot of them were actually stuck in quite um, rigid corporate structures mm-hmm. and, and very large and huge corporate structures in many cases and government organisations. So seeing people who you know took risks and just went out and did things and you know poked stuff with the stick to see what happened was actually for them quite scary. Whereas you and I'm sure they were quite envious in certain cases yeah, in, in many ways. And uh-huh. I, and I think you know everybody had something to bring. And whilst you know the financials are probably one of my weaker areas, you had a living group of eight people, and they were they put a lot of time into who was in the group and the mixtures and the different skill sets. So. You know, there are no textbooks. You know, there are books you can read and there's libraries and things, but realistically, when you get the case studies, because they famously have the case study method, you talk to your friends in your living group and together you work out the answers. Uh-huh. And that's a fantastic way of learning. And, and I wish my entire education had been like that because I, I loved it and I, I've never worked so hard, but I absolutely adored every minute of it. And you learn from people, I mean... My living group, I the utmost respect for them, you know, hugely intelligent guys and girls, very amazing business people, and, you know, everybody had their strengths and weaknesses, and people brought their expertise and their knowledge to bear so that you could overcome, and it felt like you could overcome any problem, and, you know... So I, when you graduated from that, yeah. did you think, okay, it's time for me to create something new again? Yeah, and I think, you know, you do something like that, and you feel, if I continue doing the same thing I'm doing now... I'm really not, I'm not growing, I'm not mm-hmm. learning, I'm not mm-hmm. moving forward. And you, or you, you haven't gained what you needed to gain yeah, there. And, yeah, and you right. feel like you, you almost you let down it the to side. them to, yeah. to go there. And, you know, and you hear very rapidly your classmates being promoted to CEO of this, head of that, you know, <laughs> boss, of, boss of everything. And you go, oh my gosh, why am I not doing anything? A little bit of FOMO. There is a huge amount, and I suffer... Very badly from that, indeed. You said, darn, I'm going to make a yeah. drink. And it's, well, exactly. Yeah. I, mean, I think that's part of the what drives entrepreneurs is it is that FOMO. It's they're wanting to be better. It's wanting mm. to be further. And, you know, without harking back too much to the course, I think one of the biggest lessons I learned was that your chance of success are very much tailored around the success of the market you're in. And yes. looking around, I was going, I don't really want to be in marketing. I love marketing. I love brands. But I don't really want to be running an agency or consultancy anymore. Um, I want to be looking at something more exciting. And I wanted to get back into food and drink. And it's a huge passion that has been with me my entire life. And I was you know, looking around and my life had moved on. You know, I've, I started off writing in my 20s, partying hard, you know, writing The Art of the Vodka Jelly. So, you know, in my 20s, I wrote The Art of the Vodka Jelly, and I was, you know, enjoying life lots, partying hard, entertaining. But now I'm, I'm 40s, uh, I live in the countryside, so you have to drive everywhere. I've got two small children, you know, one of whom's, you know, a handful of weeks old. I can't deal with the hangovers anymore. So whilst I love to party, I love to entertain, and I love, you know, I love the whole food and drink thing, alcohol is just playing a much smaller part of that. And for me, you know, looking around... 
what are your options? And they weren't particularly huge. Um, you know, there's some beers, there's a lot of soft drinks, and there's also quite a lot of very sugary and often sort of quite down market things. You know, you imagine if you go to a nice restaurant and someone else is having a, a beautiful glass of wine and you get offered a can of Coke, you know, that's not the same experience. Or if you drive to a wedding, for instance, and you know, the couple have very kindly laid on these fantastic drinks for, for everybody. But if you're not driving, maybe you get some elderflower or just get some water. And I felt that there was a huge opportunity here with the very young and burgeoning sort of uh, zero proof or the non-alcoholic drink sector to actually do better and to make something that's sort of dry and delicious and really enjoyable. So where did you start? Well, that's a very good point. I, I started, um, as many people do, at the kitchen sink and you know went back to but back to my roots and started looking around at various things and I loved the sort of the sort of spirit side of it I felt was really exciting place to be and so I spent quite a long time working out how to do it because you know if I wanted to launch a gin I could call up a contract gin manufacturer they'd have a decent gin with a little bit of whatever my quirky element is I could have that mm-hmm. bottle I could have 6,000 bottles in a couple of months sitting in a warehouse but it's not like that with this you actually have to work out how to do it and it's a lot more difficult and takes a lot longer and is actually a lot more expensive to do than just making a, a gin or something. Did you have an idea to start off with of flavors? Um, I did. And I, you know, the company. I love that you laugh right after well, that. So it, I can't wait to hear. It is because the company is called Borago and uh-huh. that's, that's named after the Latin classification for the borage flower. And the borage flower is this beautiful little blue edible flower. It's delicious and it's vibrant, bright blue, tastes slightly cucumbery. And at university, when I was having this wonderful time, it used to grow in the garden. So come summer, it would pop up and you'd put it in your drinks. And it's quite traditional with pins because the cucumbery flavour of it. And for me, it was like this sort of memory of enjoyment and a perfect moment. And I wanted that to be absolutely bang at the centre of the drink. Uh, unfortunately, when I processed it, it tasted horrible. So I had to go. <laughs> so that's why I laughed because I wanted it to be at the heart of the drink but it didn't make it and for me it has to be flavour led it has to be delicious so we're not even going to put a drop of it in just to say oh it's got borage in it um, it didn't work for us so it has none whatsoever but did um, you keep that flavour profile in well, your well part of that actually we moved away from that because that was quite cucumbery and, mm-hmm. and we've gone more for a citrusy spicy flavour profile but we've kept the name and the little flower which is on our logo because to me, that means so much more. It is about perfect moments. You know, the Paloma blend is named after Paloma Beach in the south of France. And the perfect moment is sitting out with your feet in the warm sand, with the sea lapping up and a glass of something good. And, and I think that's very important to me because what I want to do with our brand is to give people perfect moments. It's not just about a refreshing, delicious drink. You know, drinks and the, the whole theatre that goes around cocktails are part of the theatre and the excitement that goes about lovely moments. Of course. Now, when the the flower didn't work, um, how how long did it take you to figure out what the final product would be? So probably spent pretty much a year in development, oh. and you know, the flower didn't work. But we you know, we still use it, and and actually part of our our values are around that. So we've actually given away eighty thousand borage seeds so far, because it's also known as the bee flower. So we're helping you know, do our bit to help save the bees by creating more habitat with those. And also we have our own hives. 
Um, but back to the flavours, mm. I realised that not everything was going to work. And for me, it was very important to have absolutely zero alcohol. So some of the people um, doing it um, utilise alcohol to extract the flavours and then de-alkalise right. that, which leaves trace alcohol. Um, for me, I think you know it's all about having no alcohol at any point whatsoever. So we, we just steamed a still to, to extract flavour. And so I built a big library of you know, 70, 80 different flavours and started to see what did work. And I think my first cut was to go... Does this smell nice? Does this taste nice? And very quickly, three quarters of the table was <laughs> straight into the bed. So, you know, it, 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 that was a very uh-huh. important experiment in what works, what doesn't. And then there was quite a long process of looking at the different ingredients, the strength of the ingredients, and blending. And I think this is where my experience in food uh, came in, that there are natural pairings and things that do go together. And, you know, if you're Heston Blumenfeld, you spend a lot of time working out things that work really well together that shouldn't go together. But, you know, there are places to start, and some of the things were quite surprising. Um, but, you know, we worked quite hard on that, and a lot of testing and a lot of different variants to, to come to where we are today. Did you have a eureka moment where all of a sudden the three things or four things that you put in, you said, ah, this is it? I, I think the eureka moment was finding you know, a couple of botanicals you go, I'm going to build this around. Okay. Um, I think you know, one of the ones we, we don't talk about all our ingredients because yeah. we like a little air of secrecy and it's hilarious watching everybody guess what they are and, and great fun. Um, but you know, cardamom is one of our key ingredients and it's quite strong on the nose which gives quite a sort of floral scent to it. And as soon as I smelled that, I was like, yeah, I really want this to sit at, at the centre. But again, you know, there's lots of different cardamoms mm-hmm. and they come from all different countries right. around the world. So selecting the right one for us was really quite important there. And there were various other ones that are nice. And then it's, it's like seasoning a dish. You know, you need sometimes to you know, increase the sweetness, the salt, the spice, the citrus. And so different things that might not necessarily make sense actually added to the drinkers the whole. And now you said something about someone from your class being your partner. Oh, yeah, so uh, Jocelyn, who's... Yeah, yeah so um, I spent probably the first year doing it on my own, and uh, which is, yeah, it's, it's hard. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it, it's always tricky when you're all on your own. And I was always, you know, with an eye to getting a business partner in because having run things on my own before, it, it's quite lonely, and you know, the lows can be very low, and the highs aren't that high, you know, going around a room on your own. You, know, you have to high-five the wall, yeah. um, which, which just doesn't have the same feel. Um, and yeah, Jocelyn was very excited about it. Um, he was just leaving Tom Tom at the time, and so decided that um, he'd get involved with me. And uh, that that was very exciting because he's got a huge amount of experience in taking Tom Tom from very small to very very big, and seeing it shrink again down as well. Um, so he's been an absolutely invaluable sort of asset and and friend and mentor to sort of help me on this journey. So when you both had this product that you mm. loved, where did you go from there? Well, I, I think the, I mean, the, the interesting was when we, so he decided he was going to get involved, you know, took him through the whole the business plan, the idea, what it was, how it worked as a market. It's like, yeah, this is great. I love it. And he goes, well, uh, I suppose I better taste it. <laughs> and I think that's what's great about this, that people get it. You, know, you, you look at the figures and you know, 24% of the people who go into a pub right now don't want an alcoholic drink. You know, and figures from this month that just come out from, uh, sorry, from June, you know, 
there are 58% of this country of adults are trying to cut down on their drinking. And I think people, the time is ripe for this. So we, we started pushing and we've got a sort of multiple prong approach. We're trying to get it into high-end um, hotels, restaurants, bars, spas, places like that. So we've been very lucky to be listed in Heston Blumenfeld's Fat Duck, uh, which is very exciting and uh, happened on my birthday, so that's a very nice surprise. A great birthday present. Um, very great birthday <laughs> present. So looking at that and you know the destination pubs and uh, beautiful hotel chains, a lot of people drive to them as well. And you know where people have a wonderful experience, they want everyone to have a wonderful experience across the board. And I think people are seeing on trade that it's really important that you treat your punters in a really good way. And that's down to everything. It's how people source ingredients as well as how you, your staff behave. And I think that's been a fantastic moment for us. We're going out to retail. So we're starting in the independent wine merchant. So we're staying away from supermarkets at the moment because I actually quite like the idea of being a bit more organic and, and getting out there in the sort of more quirky, interesting places where people can interact because it is a new category. It's a new product. And to have a wine merchant who goes not drinking you should really try some of this have a taste i think that's very important to getting people to buy into it likewise you know when you go into a bar or a restaurant if someone goes oh i'm driving what have you got that's non-alcoholic they can say well have you thought of trying a barago and tonic it's delicious refreshing and really nice so that is one of the main things obviously direct to consumer we sell through the website barago.com shop don't worry to be on Ava- available now <laughs> um free postage um, but yeah, so I think the direct-to-consumer market is really exciting and it's it's changed over the last five, ten years that everyone buys everything online. There's there's no stigma, there's no difficulty. It's super easy, you know, you've got one-click one click payments, all sorts of ways to make it really easy for you. And I think, you know, whether that be on a consumer basis or even on a business-to-business basis, it's how people are starting to change. And I think that's um, that's going to be very important to us as well. Now, when you created it, did you think this is something that someone can pour from the bottle and drink? Or did you want bartenders and, you know, bar managers to create something from it? So it's very much designed to be mixed. So we would never uh, recommend people to drink it straight. Um, And we've purposely made it really quite punchy. So you'd use one 25ml, that's a single shot. Mm -hmm. So you get 20 shots in a bottle, 20 drinks in a bottle. And... We want it to be strong because I want it to hold up to things and hold its own. I want you, when you drink it, to know you're drinking it. So if you have it with tonic, it, it feels it's there. It doesn't dilute the tonic too much, so you get lots of bubbles still, but you can really taste it. And when you put it into cocktails, you know, it'll hold up to strong flavours like apple juice or pink grapefruit or uzu, which is fantastic and it's like sort of funky oriental citrusiness that's slightly strange but mildly addictive. And... Things like that for me are where it's exciting and what I love is when people take it and make it their own. So, yeah, we have little recipe books and things, so uh, more recipe writing, um, where, you know, people have some suggestions, but I love to see what people do with it. And, you know, and people are starting to use it with food as well, um, which is fun. That's fabulous. In fact, you've made me so thirsty. Should we go make some cocktails from it? Yeah, that sounds delicious. All right, cool. Thanks. We ended the chat with a Barago, tonic, and basil. A perfect end to a great interview. I can't wait to see what Tom has next up his sleeve. Our cocktail of the week is a bit more complex than the easy serve of Barago and tonic, 
but it brings together that delicious pairing of farrago and basil. So get your pens ready, as it's time for our Cocktail of the Week. Our Cocktail of the Week is the Green Fizz, a basilly brew with farrago as its base. Place 50 ml of farrago, 25 ml of lemon juice, and 25 ml of basil syrup in a shaker. Then fill with ice and shake. Double strain into a 10-ounce rocks glass loaded with crushed ice. Then garnish with two fresh basil sprigs. Top with a barrage flower if you have one. The green and blue go so well together. Plus, it's tasty. You'll find this recipe and all the cocktails of the week on alushlifemanual.com where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. Are you coming to London the week of October 1st through 7th? Then you have to experience London Cocktail Week. Buy a digital pass and you get six-pound festival cocktails in 300 of London's best bars. You get first-look access to pop-ups and parties, and free unlimited entry to the Cocktail Village in Shoreditch. I'll be there. Next time on Lush Life, we meet two Dutch twin sisters who are playing the mixers game and winning. Ask Richard Branson. Until next time, bottoms up. Thanks for listening to the Lush Life podcast, the sister of A Lush Life Manual. For more information and links to everything you heard, plus a bit more, please visit alushlifemanual.com. Always remember the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Okay, I said that last part. Theme music is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. Lush Life is produced by Evo Terra. And I'm your hostess, Susan Schwartz. I'll see you at the bar.